Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What I think makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is all about Nancy Savaka's 1991 coming-of-age film, Dogfight. It stars Lily Taylor and River Phoenix as two teenagers who connect with each other on the night before he's sent over to Vietnam. It's set in 1963 in San Francisco, and it's this beautiful romantic film, and it's so underrated. Not a lot of people know about it. Not a lot of people talk about it. And once I saw it, I had to talk about it on the podcast. I hope that you like my discussion of the film. I hope that it inspires you to watch it for yourself. There are spoilers. I go into everything about the film. I talk about a lot of the scenes, so please be aware of that. I talk about beauty standards, toxic masculinity, River Phoenix's performance in particular because this is the first film that I ever actually saw him act in. And I talk about that. I just, I go into so much. I listened to Nancy Savaka's director's commentary on the Dogfight DVD. So I have a lot of tidbits about the filming of the movie. So it's really in-depth and it's really personal at times. And I hope that you'll listen and I hope that you'll get something out of it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work that I'm doing on a monthly basis. And you can also access rewards and extras, like extra episodes and merchandise. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd love to give a great big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Max, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spundin, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much for being patrons. If financial support is not an option for you, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes. Reviews definitely help. You can tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you can send me an encouraging message or interact with me in a positive way on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Head in Films, and you can see links to all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So first, I'm going to talk about some films I recently saw and just some personal feelings that I have about film and about how film is a big solace and a big comfort and how it really helps me survive. And then you will hear my full in-depth discussion about Dogfight. So let's get started. some context, I'm recording this episode in January of 2019. I just had my Christmas break and you would think that I would watch art house Christmas films or Christmas films from around the world or from other countries and I want to talk about this because I think this is actually something important and instead of doing any of that, 
I actually binged on just these trashy 90s neo-noir films, sort of these erotic crime thrillers from the 1990s. I watched a few Madeline Stowe films. One was Blank, and another was called China Moon. Isn't that perfect? And then I watched a Richard Gere film called Final Analysis. These are not considered great films by any means, but I just was in the mood for something stylish and suspenseful. I wanted to watch films that really had a narrative, that had things happening that were unexpected and So I just got really interested in these neo-noir films. I actually used to watch crime, thrillers, suspenseful films when I was a child. And I'm really a child of the 90s and the early 2000s, I guess you could say. These films have just always been so comforting to me. They're just delicious to watch. And I don't necessarily take them seriously. I don't consider them art house. I'm not trying to project any kind of depth onto them. I'm not trying to argue that they're actually a lot deeper than you think they are. I think those films are exactly what they seem to be. They're sexy, they're stylish, they're fun, they're suspenseful, and I think that it's okay to love those films too. Art House is great. This podcast is dedicated to Art House films, and really nothing moves me deeper than a Krzysztof Kieślowski film or an Ingmar Bergman film. But I do think that it's okay to love these other films. And maybe you're not into the trashy 90s crime thrillers. Maybe you're into something else that other people would judge you for watching. Maybe you like cheesy romantic comedies or Hallmark movies, right? I certainly watched a lot of 90s made-for-TV movies when I was growing up as a kid. But the thing about those films that's so interesting is that they stay with me. The stories stay with me. Even these crime thrillers, I still think about certain images in them. And I fondly remember watching them. And as soon as I put on Final Analysis or China Moon, the cheesy music, all of it together was just so delightful and so fun. And so I love my serious, deep art house or independent films or the classic films, but I really also love these deliciously trashy, <laughs> unserious films that are not trying to be anything than uh, anything other than what they are. And I do like mystery and suspense, and I find that it sort of distracts my mind or it can help me through difficult times in my life. And I've been thinking a lot about an interview that I watched. I saw this really great film called The Holy Girl. And it's directed by Lucrecia Martel. And Lucrecia Martel is considered a really great director. Probably one of the finest directors working right now. I haven't seen a lot of her films. I've seen The Headless Woman and The Holy Girl. And when I saw The Holy Girl, there was this interview with Martel on the DVD that I watched it on. And she had this really great part of this interview that just, it stays with me. It's something that I think about and I want to linger on it for a moment. And she said in this interview, I like it when people get distracted and think about their own lives and not about the film. I like that. I do that. 
many films that I really like don't make me lose myself for two hours at the theater. They don't make me forget myself. I don't like movies that make me forget myself. I think it's good to be aware. And there are a lot of directors who have a similar sentiment or a similar philosophy. One of them would be Chantal Ackerman. There's this really great documentary about her and it's called I Don't Belong Anywhere, the cinema of Chantal Ackerman. And in it, she talks about how when when a person watches her films, she really doesn't want them to lose themselves. She doesn't want them to say that old oh, time flew by. She's talking mainly about time and her films can feel slow. They certainly have a meditative, contemplative quality to them. I think she would agree with that philosophy that she's not asking the audience to lose themselves in the film. She wants them to feel the time passing as they watch. And she wants people to be aware as they're watching a film. And so Martel is, is saying something sort of similar. And I got to thinking how, for me, cinema operates on both levels. That at times I go to films and I get really obsessed with films at certain periods of my life. When I'm sad, when I might be depressed or melancholic, when I might just feel a certain kind of anguish or an inability to cope with life or to cope with certain experiences or certain feelings that I'm having, that I'll sort of binge on films, I'll devour films obsessively. And I wouldn't say that I think a lot about the films or that I let them germinate or anything like that. I'm just taking them in, taking them in. I'm trying to escape myself. I'm trying to enter other lives, enter other worlds. I'm looking for a way out of my life and, and a way into other lives. And in that way, I guess that cinema could act as a door or a window into other worlds that are outside of my own because I can't cope with my life or I can't cope with whatever I'm feeling. And so that's why I was watching those 90s neo-noir films. I I just wanted to be taken somewhere else into this this other dimension or these other stories. Um, I didn't want to have to think. I guess I wanted to be distracted. And then other times I completely agree with Martel and I will go and I will watch art house usually or slower films or more meditative films that take me that that don't take me out of myself at all that take me deeper into myself take me deeper into my memories and into my feelings and my emotions and I think that it's okay that cinema does both, that I don't think it has to be an either or. I don't think there's only one right way to watch films or to engage with cinema. I think it's totally valid if you watch films because you're just uh, a junkie when it comes to them. They just intoxicate you and you love going to other worlds and you love seeing the way other people live and getting absorbed in their stories. And then I think it's totally valid if you watch films because you want a deeper connection to life, a deeper connection to yourself. And it's totally fine if you get both out of films, that it doesn't have to be a, pol a polarity there. They don't have to be a contradiction 
you can have both. And I think that's a really beautiful thing about films and about cinema is that they can operate on both levels. They can take you into fantasy. They can take you into this escapist mode. And that's kind of the majority of the time for me, um, for the most part, (laughs) but not always. It, It just depends on the mood that I'm in. And sometimes I want the Ingmar Bergman And I want the difficult stuff. I want the long stuff. I want films that last for a while. I want films that are experimental, that are non-narrative, that are not narrative at all, that are challenging, that are different, that are unique, that make me think, that make me ruminate and make me want to write and make me want to talk about them and they sort of get into my bloodstream and into my system into my body and they don't let me go so I love both I love these films that can really emotionally devastate you and haunt you and really make you think and and make you feel but then I also love these films that are just pure escapism and pure pleasure and it's okay to have both it's okay to love both I I just don't think there's any um there there shouldn't be any conflict between the two of those at all it's okay to love film I think sometimes in the art house community or the cine the cinephile community I guess you could say or or the group of people who maybe approach cinema from a more academic perspective what can get lost in that is pleasure, is joy, is all of these things that that make some of us love film so much. I think I will always talk about film in terms of comfort and solace and survival. That for me, film is, it's almost more than personal. I don't even think that personal, that word encompasses what I feel about these films and the way that they affect me, and the way that they change me inside, or the way they open up possibilities, or the way that they haunt me, whether the images, the story, the characters, personal just doesn't even encompass it, really. I mean, how do you talk about something that is, that has melded with you, that has merged into your own body and your own being? How do you do that? How do you put it into words? Those are the films that just give me life, that keep me going, that help me survive, that help me live. And that's what cinema is to me. That's what art has always been to me, is a way to be alive, is a way to connect with life, to connect to myself, to see the world in a different way. It's really become the meaning of my life. I live inside of art. I'm always inside of art whenever I can be, whether it's reading a book, watching a film, listening to music, writing, reading poetry. I'm always engaging with art and it's almost like I don't feel real. I almost don't feel like I am a body or have a body because I feel that I sort of become absorbed into these different texts or these different forms of art and I often don't know how to live outside of them they're they like become these cocoons for me and when I have to leave them when I have to go out into the real world I have to be this real person I have to be this person separate from art I don't know how to do that 
I don't feel like I make sense without art. And that's a very different way of relating to art than I think a lot of other people do. You know, some people love movies, but it's not part of their soul. They love music, but it's like, oh, you know, whatever. Or books. Oh, I'm going to read a book. And for me, it's like every day that I wake up, it's about, well, what film am I going to watch? What book am I going to read? How am I going to engage with art today? How am I going to structure my life around art? (laughs) How am I going to survive through this art? And it is the meaning and the purpose of my life because it just is. I, I don't know how to explain it to people who don't understand it or don't maybe live it themselves. I guess in a way, my relationship with art has become a substitute for the for the sort of absent relationship with people that I am so disconnected from people and except through the podcast, you know, the podcast is really the main vehicle, the main channel through which I do connect with other people and that I try to have some kind of effect or influence on the world or on people out out there who listen. I hope that the podcast is helpful in that way, but I think we all need coping mechanisms. I think we all need ways to try to get through this world, to get through this life that is senseless in a lot of ways and chaotic and painful. And for me, that's been films and books and increasingly cinema, right? It's It has become this obsession and I go through these periods where I just watch one film after another after another because I do want to escape myself. And then other times I watch films because I'm ready to look at something within myself. That I'm ready to confront certain emotions, memories, experiences. If I watch a film about loss, it's because I want to engage with loss. If I watch a film about death, if I watch a film about whatever, the different (laughs) subjects of cinema... It's because I want to engage with that, a a film about nostalgia, a film about memory, a film about trauma. It's because I want to engage with those things. And, And the film becomes a way for me to do that. So it's not a door out. It's not a way out of myself. It's a way into, into my own mind and my own memories and, and all of that. So it's like you're losing yourself, but you're finding yourself at the same time. And that's always, I think, very fascinating that through losing ourselves, sometimes we can find ourselves. And I think cinema creates those possibilities. And cinema is a unique art form in that way that you do feel this connection to the people on the screen. You just feel something very deep about these characters, about the stories that you're watching, and it can just completely absorb you and devour you. And sometimes I desperately need that. Sometimes I desperately need to get out of my head, to get out of my body, to get out of whatever I'm going through. It doesn't mean that I avoid it all the time. But it does mean that I can't always deal with it 24-7 and that I do need relief and I do need a reprieve and that for me, cinema provides that. But then at other times, it can also be a very rich, deep, meaningful way to explore subjects and topics that are very important in my life like grief and and loss and mental illness and memory and time and nostalgia. 
I think maybe in my life, I'm always going in and out in that way. Like I'm going into myself as deeply as I can. And then at times I'm trying to break out of myself and transcend myself. I think I've always been in search of some kind of transcendence. I've never been able to find it through religion, but I've tried to look for other channels where I can experience it. And usually it's through art. It's through reading a gorgeous poem or watching a stunning film or reading a great book. And those are the ways that I experience transcendence or even through my writing and through expressing myself as well. So I wanted to linger on that for a moment and just share my thoughts with you and something that had been going around in my head and that I wanted to articulate. Now I'm going to talk about dogfight. excited to talk about this film, Dogfight, released in 1991, directed by Nancy Savaka. It is like this little perfect gem that not a lot of people know about. When it was released, it was only shown in 24 theaters. It grossed less than $400,000. This was a small film, but the main reason why I think that it is still talked about at times is because it starred River Phoenix. And unfortunately, I think if River was not in the film, I think it would be even more forgotten, which is ev- which is very unfortunate because it's a beautiful film. And a mission that I have on this podcast and with the work that I'm doing with Her Head in Films is that I love spotlighting small films that nobody really talks about. I've done it many times on the podcast. I'll do it many more times. Because what matters to me about a film is not how famous it is or how much money it grosses or how much of a classic it's considered. It's about my emotional connection to the film. It's about how it affects me personally, the thoughts that it brings up. I mean, I I know I want to cover a film on the podcast if after the film ends, I just want to like talk to somebody about it and I want to share everything that I'm feeling. And that was how I felt watching Dogfight. I felt like so much was happening. So much was going on. I feel like Savaka just packed in so much into this film and the screenwriter as well. It was written by Bob Comfort and he called on his own experiences as a Marine. And so this film didn't make a lot of money. It's not a big classic to a lot of people, but I certainly think it deserves to be talked about more. It deserves to be seen. It deserves to be celebrated. It is one of River Phoenix's greatest performances and greatest films. In everything that I've read about River Phoenix in preparation for this episode, time and again, commenters, writers say that this is one of his best performances. What's interesting is that this is the first ever film that I have seen River Phoenix in. I am 29 years old at the moment at which I record this episode, and this was the first time I had ever seen River Phoenix. Now, he died in 1993 from a drug overdose. His most famous films include Stand By Me, My Own Private Idaho, 
running on empty and and dogfight for fans of river dogfight is probably pretty well known even though it may not be as well known to the general public river was a huge talent he's someone who i think he lives on in our collective consciousness or our our cultural consciousness. I had certainly heard of River Phoenix. I had certainly seen his face. I knew who he was. I also knew that Joaquin Phoenix was his brother, but I had never actually seen any of his films. And that's because as of the moment at which I'm recording this, none of his films are easily accessible. They're not on Netflix. They're not on Hulu. You would have to actually rent them. And from my own experience, I have not seen any of these films on cable television. When I was growing up, I did not grow up on River Phoenix's films. And I was born in 1989, so he died in 1993. I was only, I was very young when he died and did not have a sense of who he was. And I was not really exposed to his films throughout my life. Of course, other people's experiences might be different, but... Unfortunately, his movies have just not lived on the way that, say, a James Dean or a Marilyn Monroe has, even though he is still quite famous and his name is well known. He did tremendous work in this film. And I have to say, this was the first time I ever actually saw him acting. I'd seen the photos. I had seen probably biographical documentaries about him. But this is the first time I actually saw his talent, saw him in action. And I have to say, I was blown away. Absolutely blown away. And as I talk about the film, I will talk more about River and talk about my reaction to him. I thought he was just beautiful in this film, in the way that he played the character, There is something special, absolutely special about him. There is just this beauty, obviously, this sensitivity, this nuance, and he brings so much maturity. I mean, he was in his early 20s doing the film, and yet he has so much maturity, so much talent. I absolutely fell in love with him in this film, and I definitely hope to watch more of his performances Ever since watching the film, I've just been looking at pictures of him and reading about him. I wouldn't say I'm obsessed or anything, but there's this spell that I think he casts as an actor. And it's it's unfortunate that more of his films are not available and, that, and are not quite as well known. But Dogfight absolutely deserves to be. This was the second film by Nancy Savaka. She actually did her first film in 1989. It was called True Love, and it was actually very well received. It won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. And winning that prize led her to do Dogfight. And this was really her first studio film. She had a big budget, about $8 million, and she was able to do so much more. And I bought the DVD of Dogfight so that I could listen to the director's commentary. So on the DVD, there's commentary by Nancy Savaka and by producer Richard Gay. And the two of them talk about the making of the film and different experiences. And I will definitely allude to some of the tidbits as I talk about the film. This was Nancy's, really her first experience of working with a studio. And that had its privileges and its perks, like this bigger budget 
and getting access to all these great sets and, and really being able to realize whatever she wanted. But it also came with clashes and conflicts with the studio who kind of wanted to turn this film into almost like a teeny bopper thing because River was in it and because they knew teenage girls loved him so much. She felt a lot of pressure to change the ending, which I'll talk about. And she had a lot of fights with the studio, but she really put her foot down. And this is a story you'll hear often from women directors talking about how they were often second-guessed and undermined, how they still are. But she really stood her ground with Warner Brothers. She wanted to make the film the way she wanted to make it. And she was not going to do anything else. And in the end, she won. And the film is better for it. Because this film never turns into something cheesy or sentimental. And I think that's partly why it stands the test of time. That when you watch it now, more than 20 years later, it still feels fresh. It still feels emotionally vibrant. And it's just this beautiful film, this beautiful story. And on the set of the film... Nancy in different interviews and everything. I will put my sources for all my information in the show notes of this episode. I read interviews. I read different stories. All of that will be available to you in the show notes if you're curious. She talks about how even though she was older than Phoenix, she was a decade older than River Phoenix, he was almost like a mentor and a teacher to her on the set. You know, this was only her second film. And she just had a really great relationship with River and and really enjoyed working with him and Lily Taylor. Lily Taylor is superb in this film. And I'll also talk more about her as I go deeper into the film. And she said that River Phoenix actually really chose her for the film. That he was already attached to Dogfight. And that he picked her to direct it. So he was only about 19 years old. He just had this maturity about him And had this sense that he knew what he wanted to bring to the role. And she just said that it was a really great experience for her. And that she learned so much in working with River. And he he brings a a magic and a maturity and a depth to the film. But it, it wouldn't be anything without the chemistry that he has with Lily Taylor. Both of them together, they're so young. He's 19. I'm not exactly sure how old Lily was. But she was probably around the same age. And I know Lily Taylor primarily from Six Feet Under. That's the main place that I know her from. I've not seen a lot of her films. But she's always had this presence on screen that was was special to me. And she has this beautiful speaking voice. I can't quite explain it, but I love listening to her talk. (laughs) And I loved her in Six Feet Under. She plays a very... She plays a really good character in in that series, and that show means a lot to me, actually, and I just love Six Feet Under. And Lily Taylor, most recently, she's also been in The Conjuring. She's been a lot of different things. And so the two of them together, this film is really about two people. I really love films about two people who meet each other, sort of randomly, and end up changing each other's lives. They end up being transformed by each other in some way, even if they're not able to stay together. A film that comes to mind for me is one that I talked about called Brief Encounter. It's by David Lane. 
And it's a similar film about two people who fall in love and how they change each other's lives in the process. It's like this moment of fate that they meet. And I guess you could say something similar with Dogfight. But it's about a young man played by River Phoenix. He plays Eddie Birdlace. And it's 1963, San Francisco. And it's really, it's November 1963. It's important to specify the date because it's before the assassination of John F. Kennedy. JFK will be assassinated November 22nd of 1963. And this film is really taking place before that sort of the the golden time or the Edenic time before his assassination. Because as many of us know, when, when Kennedy was killed, it was profoundly traumatic to our country. And the 1960s were a convulsive and transformative time in America. It was a time of civil rights. It was a time of a lot of assassinations and death and violence, but also protests and people really fighting for their rights and, and, and all of that. But it was also the time when the Vietnam War started and all kinds of, and the, you know, you have the, the hippies and the sort of counterculture that starts to grow, the, the sexual revolution, drugs, all kinds of things are happening in the 1960s that will irrevocably change our country. And this film is trying to talk about a lot of that and, and fit a lot of that in there, but it's doing it in a really subtle and beautiful and, and simple way by talking about these two people. So Eddie Birdlace is in San Francisco in November 1963 and it's the day before he's about to be shipped off and he's about to be sent to the the Vietnam um, War or to Vietnam and which at that time was not really as much in the consciousness of the American people and him and his buddies and the other Marines, I guess, in his group, they are doing something called a dogfight. And a dogfight is pretty simple. All of these guys would chip in money. And the way that you won all this money was that you went out and you found the ugliest girl to be your date at the party that they held. So whoever had the ugliest date would win the money. And that's basically the dogfight. And that's what they're deciding to do the night before they get shipped off. Nancy, um, you know, Savaka in the commentary, she talked about how a lot of people had trouble believing that this would happen, that there were these dogfights. And she says, no, they, they really did happen. And similar things happened in the military and also in fraternities. So this was something that actually went on, that these women were chosen for this. And it is unspeakably cruel. And I'll talk about more of that in a minute. And Bob Comfort, the screenwriter, called on his own experience as a Marine in the early 1960s. He in included a lot of his own experiences. I mean, the film starts in 1963, but there's a short period before that where it's 1967 and Birdlace has come home. He's coming back to San Francisco and he's there and he's thinking back to 1963. And then at the end of the film, we'll come to understand why he's come back. But it really mainly takes place in 1963 in San Francisco with this dogfight. 
Birdlace has sort of these, uh, Eddie Birdlace has these three friends and they're very, very good buddies. They're very, um, we see them on the bus at the beginning of the film when they're young and they're just about, you know, to be shipped off, obviously. And they're very raucous. They have this Playboy magazine on the bus. There's a lot of energy. It's just this very masculine world. For me, this film is really about two different worlds in a way that sort of clash or really about one person that's trying to inhabit both worlds and that would be Eddie. He inhabits this militaristic, hyper toxic masculine world of the military and his buddies. And then later on when he meets Lily Taylor, Rose, he's trying to also inhabit this more feminine world where she exists and the film is about them meeting and and the one night that they spend together and the way that it both changes them. It's this very simple story, but it's got so much in it about loss of innocence, about war and violence, about men and women, about masculinity, about a moment in time in America right before the carnage and the bloodshed and the death of the Vietnam War. It's heartbreaking in a way because you know what's going to happen to these two people. You know what's going to happen to him. You know that he's being sent off to this bloodbath, to this war that would eventually become very unpopular. And there was widespread condemnation and anti-war protests. And so the both of them are, are on the cusp of this this other world that's coming that they don't even know is coming, but it's on the horizon and it's going to be difficult and chaotic and painful in a lot of ways. But for this one night, they're together and they're learning about each other and all of that. But it doesn't start off that way. It starts off with this dogfight where these guys are going to bring the ugliest women. And so all of these guys go around San Francisco looking for unattractive and hideous women that they can invite to this party. I, I want to talk really deeply about this film. Sometimes when I do an episode, I just, I talk about main themes. But with this episode, I really want to go chronologically through the film. I want to talk about certain scenes. I want to talk to you about the film as it unfolds. Because it's just... It's just that kind of film for me where I just want to talk about different aspects and elements of it and share my enthusiasm for all of this because it is just one of, it's a special film and it's hard for me to put it all into words, but it's an ambitious film. It's a beautiful film and it's also fun. It's funny at times. There is comedic relief, even though it can be sort of crude and vulgar in, in a lot of ways. These guys go around San Francisco looking for these ugly women and they pretend that they like them, that they're attracted to them and invite them to the party. These girls do not know, or women, they're, they're, some of them are older. They don't know the true purpose. They just think that these guys are interested in them and that they're being invited to a party. So it's, it's very, very cruel. I think in the hands of a different director, possibly a male director, that you could lose the sympathy for the women. That it could just be funny. It could just be comedic relief. And I think Nancy Savaka does a really great balance, a balancing act 
of, you know, some of it being sort of lighthearted and funny, but us also realizing as an audience that when we laugh at these women, we are laughing at their expense, that they are being ridiculed. And so we might laugh at some of these scenes, but we're not let off the hook for laughing that these are real women and we will see the way that the dogfight affects these women later on. The whole dogfight scenes, you know, the whole section of the film at the beginning that is about the dogfight is really a stark reminder that a woman's worth is often reduced solely to what she looks like and that we as women are seen as only useful to men if we are pretty and attractive and ugliness is something that I've talked about a bit on this podcast. I will refer you to my episode on the Enchanted Cottage. And in that uh, episode on the Enchanted Cottage, I talked about ugliness. I talked about my own life and how hard it's been to be in the world as a woman who's seen as unattractive, who is seen as ugly, and the pain of that and what it does to you. And I'm actually very interested in films that represent women who are, who are seen as ugly. And The Enchanted Cottage has a character in it, a young woman who is seen as homely, as unattractive. And it really looks at her plight and her life in a sympathetic way. It's very rare for us to see women represented in film who are not attractive. From the beginning of cinema, we have mainly seen beautiful women. We've been enchanted by them and captivated by them. The male gaze has been central to cinema very early on. Not totally. The early days of cinema, we did have more women directors. But once women, once men really started to dominate and have control over this art form, Women have been objectified, sexualized, and reduced to their looks. And hey, we all live under patriarchy. And under patriarchy, women are defined by the way that they look. That is part of the world that we live in. Do I believe that we need to redefine beauty standards? Absolutely. But I would also question why we need to be beautiful at all. That why, why does our worth always have to be tied to beauty? So even when you say you want to redefine beauty standards to include more women, to include different types of women, different sizes, shapes, races, abilities, I certainly believe in expanding our view of beauty. But I guess I would also ask you to critique and question the very concept of beauty And why for us to feel like valuable people, we have to think that we're beautiful. It shouldn't matter. Like I would like to live in a world where whether I'm beautiful or not doesn't determine my humanity and my worth as a person. And what we see in dogfight is women's worth defined solely by their looks. That these women are just seen as jokes. They're not seen as like real women with dreams and hopes and desires and and thoughts and feelings you know they're completely reduced to stereotypes and caricatures and just things for these men to make fun of and to make money off of too because they're ugly and unattractive they are no use they are of no use they are worthless 
And these men would never talk to them or interact with them in everyday life. This is the only time they would interact with these women is to gain something off of them for the dogfight. And so it's actually very rare to see women on film who are not seen as beautiful. To see fat women, to see women who might not have the perfect hair, who might be gangly, who might have big teeth or a big nose or, you know, just different things about, you know, women's bodies, you know, women who have different looks. It's actually very rare to see these women in in films. And so there's something sort of very radical about dogfight in that it shows these women. It actually shows them. And while it's within the context of ridicule, at least there is some form of representation of women who look this way because we hardly ever see girls or women on screen who are not sexually attractive. They are just, (laughs) every time a woman is on screen, every time a story is told about a woman, she often has to be beautiful. She has to be. It's just so rare. And so I think when we see women like this, women who might look like us, the viewers, (laughs) you know, not all, not every viewer at the cinema is gorgeous and a model, right? We might see ourselves in some of these women, that that's striking you know it's a startling thing because there's just such a lack of that kind of representation even though it comes at their own expense and it does come through ridicule so eddie birdlace is looking he's on the prowl for a woman to take to this dog fight right he goes into a place called rose's coffee shop and this is after he has failed to snag a few women that he came across And the thing about Birdlace is that you get the way that River played him was really brilliant because he is complicit in these acts of toxic masculinity. He's he's complicit in all of it, isn't he? He is participating in the dogfight. He is going around trying to get these women. But at the same time, he almost does it in a in a begrudging way. He almost does it. There's something in, in River's eyes and the way that he plays Birdlace that you get the sense that he is deeply uncomfortable with what he is doing. That he knows he's supposed to do it to prove his manhood, to prove his masculinity. But he's not exactly okay with it. You get what I mean? Like, there's this tension in Birdlace of he's doing these things, but he doesn't feel good about it. So, so there's this contrast about him in comparison to the other guys who they just, they seem to love it. They seem to just, uh, get, get off on it and have such a great time demeaning these women. And throughout the film, they will demean women in different ways. But Eddie, Eddie is much more uncomfortable about it. But we, but the script doesn't let Eddie off the hook either because he still goes through with it. So he's not pure by any means. He's not perfect. He's just as bad as they are. But at least he questions it. There's a questioning about Birdlace. And there's a sensitivity about him. It's just there. And at Rose's coffee shop that's where lily taylor is and she plays rose her mom is named rose her grandma's named rose they're all named rose and she's in the back with her guitar and she's playing music lily taylor just she's immediately so warm and so relatable and so real and she just immediately brings rose to life and you just love her instantly you really do 
And Eddie sees her and he approaches her and he pretends to like folk music. And that's when they start to talk and when they meet. And in this scene, Rose's hair is sort of teased. And she's not ugly. You know, she's not hideous. But the way Nancy Savaka put it in her commentary is that the thing about Lily is that she maybe didn't have uh, the conventional beauty that we would expect. She was not slender and blonde and this ideal that we have of women. She was very different than that. And so Rose and Eddie start to talk about folk music and that's how he sort of reels her in and and gets her interested in him. And Rose in this scene, she seems, she's a little bit suspicious of him because she can tell he really doesn't know anything about folk music and he's lying through his teeth. But she seems kind of thrilled that a guy like Eddie Birdlace would be talking to her. She seems very naive and sort of awkward and like she doesn't have a lot of experience talking to boys. She's like your average teenage girl, right? Like that's, that's kind of how you are at that age. And River, River Phoenix, no matter what you did to him, he was still gorgeous. He cut all his hair off really for the film he sort of has this crew cut and he stands very rigidly and the male actors who played the Marines, they actually went through like a week of Marine training before they did the film so that they would stand correctly and they would just have that sense that they'd been through some kind of military training. But River is still very attractive, (laughs) you know, even with these very conservative clothes on dressing in a way that River Phoenix would never dress and his hair is cut short, but he still has a beautiful face. And so he's, you still sort of swoon over him. And I think you can tell that Rose is attracted to him and she's sort of thrilled that he would be talking to her. And in her commentary, Nancy Savaka says that Rose was actually supposed to be fat, that she had actually auditioned various actresses who were larger, but she said it just didn't work out. She said there was a self-consciousness to the actresses. She said that she felt like the film would shift too much to focus on the weight of Rose. And she said that she didn't want that. And she was also very interested in Lily Taylor, who at the time was very slim. And she was drawn, I guess, to Lily Taylor and to what she could bring to that role. So they they let go of this idea that Rose would be larger, but they did have Lily gain about 20 pounds. And you can see that in the film, she is a little bit larger. She's still by no means fat or anything, but at times Eddie, Eddie Birdlace will refer to her as like chubby, you know, and, and people will sort of say that about her. And when I say fat, I'm saying fat as a descriptor. I'm saying, I'm not saying fat to be hurtful or or critical, but I'm saying it within the context of the fat acceptance movement, of the body positivity movement, to say fat as a way to just describe a body type, that there are thin people and there are fat people, and that I'm not saying it to demean anybody, but as a descriptor for a body type. I just want to be clear about that because some people don't like that word or they think it's a demeaning or derogatory word. And I'm saying it in a way that it has been reclaimed that a lot that there are people who want to say the word fat and say it in positive rather than a negative way to try to take the power out of the word. 
So I just want to be clear about that. But I thought it was very interesting to hear that in the commentary that Rose might have been a fat character because it's quite rare. It's quite rare to see larger actresses on screen, to see larger women, and to see them within romantic roles and romantic experiences with men. It's incredibly rare. There's very few that I can name at this point. I know that there was Hairspray with Ricky Lake in the main role, and then it's it's been done a few times by different actresses. Um, I know that there is... A new film on Netflix called Dumplin'. I don't know if there's a romance in that film though. But I do think that that is about a a fat character, a fat woman. That's, I I can't name a lot. So I think that would have been an interesting take if the film had gone in that direction. But that is not what they wanted to do. So we rarely see those representations. And I think it will continue to be a difficult thing for us to see on screen. There is um, Real Women Have Curves with America Ferreira, who is a bit more voluptuous and larger in that film. And that is, that's a great film. And I love it. So that's one example of a representation for sure. But there's just not that many. So what Nancy Savaka decided to do was to say that Rose was going to not necessarily be ugly or hideous, but that she would be unconventional looking, that she would not fit that ideal. And I also think that Nancy Savaka said something very powerful in the commentary where she said that, you know, there is this ideal and all of us who don't fit that ideal are possible targets of the kind of treatment that these women are put through at the dogfight, that any of us could be, could become targets of these derogatory comments about our bodies and our looks because we don't live up to that ideal. And that's a reality for many women. Most women do not fit the ideal. They do not look like Giselle Bündchen or um, Cindy Crawford. You know, that's not who we look like. We look like ourselves, but often that's not good enough. So Eddie talks about how he's going to a party and Rose basically invites herself. He doesn't really invite her. She says that she wants to go. And there's this great scene where she's in her bedroom and she's like frantically trying to get dressed. I had the sense that Rose was, as I said before, like naive. She'd probably not been to a lot of parties, had probably not been on dates with a lot of guys. She seems sheltered. You know, when when Eddie first meets her, she's in the back she's hidden away. She seems like someone who is very within her own world. And throughout the film, you'll see her in her bedroom and her bedroom sort of acts like this cocoon or this shelter in a way. She just, she lives with her mom. She just seems very closed off and shy and separate from the world. But at the same time, she has a lot of interest in the outside world and she has a desire to affect and change the world around her. But she's in her bedroom. She's teasing her hair. She's putting on jewelry, putting on eyeshadow. She's picking out a dress. She's very excited. And I really love scenes of women getting dressed, of women putting on makeup. I think it's captivating. I think it's fascinating because Often you're seeing a woman in a private space by herself, looking at herself in the mirror, you know, putting on her eyeshadow, her lipstick, and every woman sort of has her rituals with makeup. I personally don't wear makeup, but a lot of women do. My mom wore makeup. She still does. And I remember when she 
would put on makeup when I was younger. And I remember going through her makeup and and all of that and smelling her perfume. And it's like, I think a lot of young girls, a lot of women can relate to that where you look at your mom's makeup and, and you, you experiment with it. And makeup is complicated for me because I don't wear it out in the world. But when I'm alone, sometimes I'll put on lip gloss and it's almost like I don't wear makeup out because I don't feel... I don't feel like I should, I guess, because I seem, I see myself as like ugly and unattractive. And so I just feel like it wouldn't look right for me to have lipstick on. I can't quite explain it. I just feel like I would be trying to make myself beautiful when I'm not. So it's something that I actually feel really uncomfortable wearing outside. So when I'm in my room, I'll put lip gloss on and I'll do all of that, but I don't wear it out. But I just, I loved that, I loved that scene. I think it said a lot about Rose, that she's, she's trying to make herself up and she's trying to be beautiful. And it's a reminder too, that these women, the outside world sees them as ugly. The outside world sees them as hideous and unattractive, but they don't necessarily see themselves that way. You know, when I'm in my body, when I'm experiencing my life and all of that, I don't think, God, I'm just so ugly. My whole worth is based on how I look. I'm not doing that. I'm I'm doing other things. I'm not thinking about my looks all the time. It's only when you encounter other people or you are put in a situation, perhaps with the opposite sex and with men, where you experience it. That's what it was like for me in school, you know, when, when boys would say things to me that were very demeaning and derogatory and hurtful about my looks, the way that I was invisible to men, the way that I was ignored by by boys, that affected me and it, it deeply wounded me even to the point where I am now at 29. It's like those wounds don't really heal when you're seen as unattractive and the way that other people treat you and react to you is very different than if you are an attractive person. It's it's the reality. <laughs> And um, I think a lot of people don't want to acknowledge it. I think Janet Mock, I think she's called it pretty privilege. I don't know if she coined that term, but it's the first time I ever encountered it was when I was reading something or, or watching something with Janet Mock. She's this really famous transgender activist and she's amazing. I love her work. And she's talked about how being a beautiful trans woman is a very different experience than if she was an unattractive trans woman. It's in trans women and cisgender women, we are both held to those standards of of beauty, of being measured in that way. And so much of being a woman becomes about what you look like. And so it kind of makes me sad that I won't make, won't wear makeup out, but it does feel like I don't have the right to. Like, I guess it feels to me like, oh, well, people who wear makeup are pretty. And I'm not pretty, and so I shouldn't wear makeup. Like, that's the way I feel about it. I I don't know why. I know I shouldn't, and it's just sort of sad to think about me wearing lip gloss inside my house, but that's what I do. It's, It's kind of sad, yeah. But like I said, like, I don't think about my ugliness 24-7. You know, I don't experience myself that way. I just experience myself as who I am and as a person, but these women, and and I think these women in the film would, would be the same, that they don't think of themselves as ugly. They just think of themselves as, as who they are and, and as people. And 
But these Marines, these guys see them in a completely dehumanizing, one-dimensional way that they're just ugly. They're just fodder for the dogfight. And and Rose doesn't see herself that way. She's putting on her makeup, putting on her dress. She's trying to look pretty because she sees herself as pretty. She sees herself as beautiful, right? But Eddie doesn't at first. I think he changes by the end of the film. He sees her. He sees her her goodness and he sees who she really is. And that's what matters to him by the end of the film, not what she looks like. I think there is a, tra- a gradual transformation that happens. He actually sees her the way that she sees herself, I think. I think there is this, this two ways that women see themselves. They see themselves, you know, in the mirror by themselves as they are. And then they see themselves the way men see them. You know, they see them, they imagine themselves through men's eyes. I'm not saying all women do that, but a lot of women do. And I think we're socialized to do that too, is to be pleasing and appealing to men. And that's sort of what Rose is trying to do in this moment. But she's also putting that stuff on for herself and creating her own identity through her fashion. She picks out this yellow dress and it's very pretty and um, Nancy Savak in the commentary says that that was very thought out, that they wanted the yellow because it was, it made her look like this duckling, like this fluffy, cute duckling. I thought that was sweet. And I love when they're walking to the dog fight because that's when Rose really starts to come out. She's talking about things. Um, you can tell that she's passionate about politics and that she's interested in what's happening in the world. It really reminded me of myself as a teenager. I was a lot like that when I was younger of like, I was very passionate about the what was happening in the world and very knowledgeable and interested in, in the news and and curious about the world. And I had all these sort of big grand ideas <laughs> Um, you know, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to make an impact. I wanted to be important, you know, and of course I've become none of those things. You have all these really grandiose ideas about yourself and what you're going to do in the world. And she wants to change the world. She says, I want to have an effect on the world. She's so idealistic and dreamy. I really hate how we lose that as we get older. And this is also why I love this film. Because for me, Rose is like one of the best movie heroines. The best lead characters um, one of, just that I've ever seen. The best female lead character I've ever come across. I love her. I, I, when I watched this film for the first time, I was like, I really wish I had had this film when I was a teenager. I so wish that I had had something like this when I was growing up, right? And I just thought of another show that does look at an ugly character, and that's Ugly Betty with America Ferrera. I didn't watch that whole show, but that's another example of something of a show that was showing an unconventional or a character that was seen as ugly or not attractive. Although I don't know if it was really about ridiculing her. I I don't know because I didn't really watch the show. Um, but that would just be another example, one, a rare example, another one. You know, I, I remember watching a bit of Ugly Betty when I was younger. I just, I feel like I didn't have a lot of heroines like this growing up, where it was more about who a woman was, who a girl was, instead of what she looked like. 
It's it's so important to these characters and into our representation of women. But so I love, love, love Rose. I, I'm just so deeply in love with this character, in love with her passion for, for the world, her idealism, her dreaminess. She wants to join the Peace Corps. She says that. She's outspoken. She stands up for herself. She believes in herself. She has dreams and, you know, she's into folk music and she's so unconventional, not just in the way she looks, but in who she is and the things that she's passionate about and the things that she cares about. If I had a daughter, if I had kids, I would show them this film. I would be like, watch this film because this is a great female character. I'm done with the strong female characters. I don't care about strong female characters. I want authentic female characters, real female characters. Not every woman on the planet is strong all the time. We are complicated and complex and we get hurt and we get wounded. Sometimes we're sensitive. Sometimes we're weak. And what I see in Rose is a very authentic, well-rounded, multi-dimensional female character. And that's more important and compelling to me. So she talks about wanting to join the Peace Corps. And so immediately we, we have these very different characters these two very different characters one who really believes in peace and love and really um presages the the hippie era that's about to come and then we have another one who is about to go off to war who is very violent at times who is very militaristic in a lot of ways we have these very opposite characters i guess you could almost say these are two parts of america at the time too And how are they going to come together throughout this film? But she's open to him. It doesn't hurt that he's really cute and beautiful, does it? (laughs) She's open to him. And, um, but I don't think he knows at first what to make of her at all. They're about to go into the dogfight. She's putting on lipstick. He smears it on her face to make her look as ugly as possible. And you can tell that he's starting to doubt what he's doing. That he actually doesn't want to go in there. He says at one point, you know, we don't have to go in there. We don't have to do this. Almost like he's starting to regret it. He's starting to feel bad. But they they do go through with it. And as I said, Nancy Savaka said that a lot of people had trouble believing that these parties happened. That these dogfights happened. And they had them at fraternities too. And they would call them pig parties. So this did happen and and she said that it's people not wanting to believe the kind of cruelty that's out in the world. And I I think the dogfight is incredibly cruel. And I think people don't want to believe it too because there is this unwillingness to see military people in this way. To see them as possibly being mean. To see them, um, to, to look at how men are socialized to object women, you know, and how there is violence and there's cruelty in the military. <laughs> These men are trained to kill. They are trained to do violence. And that's a part of, of it that we don't want to look at and we don't want to acknowledge. I think that might be part of it too. Nancy in her commentary really talks about how the film is really about manhood, about how men feel this pressure not just to 
prove their manhood to women, but to prove it to other men. And for me, the dogfight is sort of the ultimate or one of the ultimate examples of toxic masculinity. It's it's a cruel manifestation of it, of the reduction of women to their looks and the ridicule of women who don't who don't measure up to societal beauty standards. How these men are using these women to prove their manhood to each other. And and Birdlace Eddie Birdlace is resisting it at times. He he doesn't want to go through with him, but this toxic masculinity really requires him to participate in this really disgusting display of cruelty to prove that he is a man to his friends. He's really trapped in patriarchy just as much as these women are. That's the thing. Please read Bell Hooks. (laughs) She has a whole book about masculinity. I'll put it in the show notes. It's about all of this. It's about masculinity and, um, and patriarchy and how patriarchy is damaging not just to women, who are demeaned under patriarchy, but also to men. Because it walls men off, it locks men off from things that are feminine. Because under patriarchy, anything feminine is devalued and demeaned. As I said earlier, for me, this film is about a character trying to inhabit two worlds. A masculine world of the military and his buddies, and a feminine world of Rose. And how Rose's world traditionally would be devalued because it's feminine, because it's of women and a woman. This film contrasts those two worlds. I think it gives more power and beauty and weight to Rose's world. And it shows Eddie's struggle to live in both of those worlds, to inhabit both of those worlds. And I think it's a reminder to us of how patriarchy hurts men and women and that our, our goal to end patriarchy is not just for women, but also for men to liberate all of us, to liberate all people from this very toxic, oppressive system that harms us. It truly harms us. So many men are, are not able to explore certain parts of themselves. And I feel like when Eddie is finally with Rose... He's able to connect with those parts of himself. I really do. So the party's in full swing. We see all these women. And eventually Rose drinks too much. She ends up in the bathroom. And she finds out what the whole party is about. That it's about bringing these ugly women and using them and demeaning them for this money. (laughs) That's what she finds out. And... She just, when she's hearing this, her face is just, she's horrified by what she's hearing. And what I also love about Rose as our heroine in this film is that she's not going to take this humiliation lying down. She is no shrinking violet. She doesn't run out there crying. I mean, she certainly could. She could just run away. That's probably what I would have (laughs) done. That's definitely what I would have (laughs) done. But she's not going to let Eddie or any of these guys get away with what they've done. And I love that about her. She fights back. She goes and she confronts Eddie. She calls him, quote, a cruel, heartless, ignorant creep. And I felt like in this glorious confrontation, in this moment, 
She's really standing up for all the women at this party. And she says, quote, who gave you the right to treat people like this, unquote. And she says she's sorry she ever met him. And I love this because, you know, I think these young men, because they've been through Marine training, they're very desensitized. And they often don't have to confront the violence that they do or the hurt that they inflict, the pain that they inflict. And in that moment, she's really making Eddie look at what he's done and the way that he's hurt her. And so she retreats back into her her room. She's got uh, posters on her wall of all these different folk singers that she loves. She has her record player and she listens to, to folk music and cries and... I don't know a lot about folk music. I love Joni Mitchell. So she's sort of my main person. But I know that Rose loves Woody Guthrie. She loves Bob Dylan. She loves John Baez. And that is something that I love about this film too, is that when I watched it, it inspired me to listen to more folk music. And I definitely, I like went on Spotify and I saved a Joan Baez album and I can't believe I haven't listened to John Baez. I really need to do that. And and so these folk singers are so important. And Nancy Savak in the commentary said that it was very important for her to make sure that Rose knew her stuff, that she was educated about folk music, that this wasn't just some dream that she had, that she was really knowledgeable about folk singers, the history of folk music, because this is something that she really loves. And I love Rose's bedroom. I, I love seeing women's bedrooms in films, especially young girls, like teenage girls, because I remember, you know, the way my bedroom was and the poster. Now, I did not have folk singers on my wall. I had a Hanson poster. I have a photo of when I was really young, probably about 10 or 11. And you can see a Hanson poster on my wall. I loved Hanson. I loved pop music. I was really into Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC. That's what I grew up on. Um, I loved, I loved that music. And I also really liked women uh, singer-songwriters in the 1990s. I loved Sarah McLaughlin and Paula Cole and Jewel and, um, and Sean Colvin. I remember watching MTV and VH1 and seeing those videos and absolutely loving them. And I recently went through this obsession with The Lilith Fair. I watched this documentary about it. I got this DVD and it had like Sarah McLaughlin and Jewel and, and um, Cheryl Crow and Sean Colvin and Meredith Brooks. I loved Meredith Brooks. I loved that song, bitch. <laughs> I was in love with that stuff when I was younger and I still am. I still... Alanis Morissette, absolutely. Tori Amos, PJ Harvey, and Bjork came later for me, like later in the 2000s. I didn't quite connect uh, with their music in the 90s. I was just really young. I was more into the either the pop stuff or the, the lighter stuff. And I also really loved the girl groups of the 90s. You had In Vogue and Destiny's Child and TLC. Those are the ones that I mainly remember. And I absolutely loved them. And I loved country women of the 90s. I loved Faith Hill, Shania Twain, Martina McBride, all of it. Reba. Reba's a big one that I just absolutely love. So um, the 90s for me was like a female fest. Like I loved all kinds of women, whether they were pop, country, R&B, 
I loved Aaliyah, you know, like all kinds of different people. I love the music from the 90s. It was just a rich, rich time for music where every genre, I feel like, had such great stuff. You had the singer-songwriters, the alternative stuff, like Alanis and, um, you know, Sarah McLaughlin. And then you had the, the R&B with TLC and Destiny's Child. And um, then you had country and you had pop with Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Mandy Moore. I was into all of it. I had all the CDs all of them. <laughs> so I I don't know much about folk music. I'm just going to put it that way. But watching this film got me really interested in it. And so I'm going to I'm going to explore some of this music. And Rose is just so so very passionate about it and she's so heartbroken. And so I just I love that she's this teenage girl and she's like so precocious and serious. Like I said, I had a Hanson poster on my wall. But at the same time, I was reading Holocaust memoirs and Anne Frank. I was a complete contradiction at that age where I loved this really bubblegum pop music. And then I was reading very serious books. I, 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 when I think of myself as in, my, in my youth, I think of myself as very serious. You know, I took myself very seriously. But Rose is a teenager and, and she's not into the pop at all. She's into the folk music. She's very deep. <laughs> And um, her room is just this, this place of refuge for her, you know. And Eddie feels bad about what he's done. And he goes to her, he puts a note on her window and asks her to come down and go to dinner with him. And he gives her this flower and she does go down there. And I wonder why she went down there. Like I ask myself that because I would be so hurt. You know, I would just be so hurt. I don't know if I would trust this person. Like for me, this film brought up sort of experiences from my childhood where people were very hurtful towards me and treated me in a particular way that was really hurtful and, and painful. And I don't know if I would ever trust those people again. But I do think at the same time that Rose is like this very giving, generous, forgiving soul. And I think maybe she felt something, maybe she felt some kind of electricity with Eddie and that she can't let go of it. And maybe she still wants to see where this could go. I think she did feel the sense that Eddie was different. I think if he had been any of the other guys, I don't know if she would have gone down, but I think she felt something in him that was different and that was perhaps open even though Eddie participates in these rituals and I'm not trying to say oh well he's a good man you know and then all the other guys are bad guys he he did this stuff but there's something in Eddie that is resisting it that is open to a different way and a, a different kind of behavior and I think Rose senses that I just think maybe something inside her is telling her to give him another chance since he is apologizing and he does seem sincere and he is being vulnerable. They go out to dinner together. There's like this scene in the restaurant where Eddie feels like he's really being treated badly by the maitre d' that he's being looked down upon. And it just occurs to me that in a way that maitre d' was treating Eddie the way that Eddie had treated Rose in taking her to the dogfight, that he was diminishing her, that he was treating her in in a way that was not right or respectful. He was looking down on her 
as below him or less than him. And then you see the way that Eddie reacts when he is treated that way by the maitre d' because he doesn't have the right clothing on and he's not good enough. And the way that Eddie reacts is sort of violently. He's very aggressive. He's angry. He curses a lot. This is a thing throughout the film where Rose hates the way that Eddie curses. (laughs) She hates the way he cusses and and says all the bad words. And I have to say personally, I'm not someone that cusses a lot. Um, I was sort of raised in a home where we we weren't supposed to cuss. <laughs> My mom didn't like it. And so it's not something that I do a lot. Um, I'm not going to judge people who cuss, but it, I don't like to do it. And um, I sound so conservative saying that, but it's the truth. So I, I totally understood why Rose was kind of like, please stop that. <laughs> you see this rage come out of Eddie. You see this desire for revenge, his desire to like get back at the maitre d'. And there's, there's this side of Eddie that comes out. We don't know his backstory. We don't know really a lot about him. Um, we just know that, you know, that he's joined the Marines and he's going to be sent off to Vietnam. And I mean, he may have talked a bit about his life earlier in the film. I can't remember, but there's this sense about Eddie that comes through of like this restlessness. He, he comes off like he really hates the world. He has this animosity towards people in the world. He seems uncomfortable in his own skin and very ill at ease. Rose is very different than that. There's something more peaceful and calm about her. And even though she doesn't totally fit into the world, she still seems comfortable in her own skin and with who she is. And I think the only way that she really could have fought back the way that she did at the dogfight was if she did feel that way about herself. She she does have a sense of confidence about herself. And she does stand up for herself in her scenes with Eddie. She does not let him just walk all over her and just do whatever he wants to do and say what he wants to do. And after the restaurant, they just walk around. A lot of the film was actually uh, filmed in Seattle, even though it's set in San Francisco. So a lot of it was shot in Seattle at night. And they didn't have a lot of time to do these scenes. There was only so much um, nighttime in which they could shoot. Because most of the film takes place at night. Most of it does. It's taking place on this one night before he leaves. Now, if, if there were larger exterior scenes, those were done in San Francisco, like there's this scene of uh, the City Lights bookstore in San Francisco. And there's other scenes where you'll see the Golden Gate Bridge and stuff like that. So you know you're in San Francisco. But a lot of the film was filmed in Seattle. And I thought that was sort of interesting. And they just walk around. They just talk. They share things about their lives. It's really sweet. I feel like when Eddie's with Rose, there is this other part of him that comes out. He doesn't have to be rowdy or outrageous or insulting towards women. This other side of him comes out and it's a side that men are not encouraged to show or explore much. Which is why I see the film as more of a critique of the kind of toxic masculinity that Eddie and his friends displayed at the beginning of the film. I think in the hands of a different director, we may not have got that. But with Nancy Savakis, she brings that to the film beautifully of, look who Eddie is when he's not around these guys. Look how attentive and and nice and kind and vulnerable he is. All of the things that he can't really be around his buddies. 
And so I think the film shows this, this young man struggling to conform to the standards of masculinity. I really do. I, I think that is an important part of this film is its critique of masculinity, or if you want to call it toxic masculinity. I don't know all the right words to say, but that is the way that I would conceptualize it. And we see how he's able to be around a woman and actually talk to her and listen to her and respect her. And that's in stark contrast to the way that his friends act throughout the film. And when he's off with Rose, his buddies are off doing other things. They're getting tattoos. Um, at one point, they're in a porno theater getting a blowjob. <laughs> they they are having a completely opposite evening. And it's one that comes off really hollow and empty to me in comparison to the kind of deeper connection and relationship that Eddie is forging with Rose. And as they're walking, you get a sense again of the different worldviews that Eddie and Rose have. She deeply believes that art can change the world and she wants to change things through art, specifically through folk music. And she thinks that music and and things like that, um, more peaceful things, are a better way to change the world than through violence. And he basically thinks that you change the world through shooting and through violence. And unfortunately, he's right in a lot of ways. He is being brutal, but he's being truthful. That what really changes the world are war and violence more than music or books or films. I mean, if we lived in a world that actually was affected by art, you know, it would be a better world. But unfortunately, we live in a world shaped by violence. It's it's a terrible, terrible truth. But look, look at the look at the Vietnam War that he's about to go to. That changed a lot of things. That led to the death of so many people. The destruction of a country, really. I mean, Vietnam was just it, there was so much violence and destruction. War is a terrible thing, but it has. A much deeper impact on the world than than folk music. <laughs> it doesn't mean that art doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that those messages don't matter. Um, it doesn't mean that books and films and 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 music can't have an impact um, or or influence things in any way. I'm not saying that, but it just doesn't have the same kind of impact as shooting, as Eddie would say. And they go to this place where Rose wants to sing one day. But she's waiting for her hair to grow out and for her to have her own songs that she's written. It's sort of like a a place where I guess folk music people play. And she gets on the piano and she's singing a song. And um, that's a really sweet scene. You know, you're seeing this side of Rose where she's coming a bit out of her shell more. I think that Eddie is trying to bring her out of her shell, bring her out into the world more to give her more experience of the world. I think that is something he's doing. And they go to this arcade and they play whack-a-mole and he takes her into this red room with all these music boxes and this is their first kiss and it's like this very magical thing. Like I love the representation of sexuality in this film of, of sex and 
eroticism, I guess you could say. I I love their first kiss and it's so awkward, (laughs) Uh, but it's so delicate at the same time. He's obviously much more experienced than she is. He's probably already been with women, but he's so tender with her in this scene. It's almost like with this kiss um, or with this this scene, it's like their two worlds merge Like his world of experience and her world of innocence. And I feel like that for her, this is sort of her initiation into the adult world. Because I have this sense about Rose. I don't want to, I don't want to say anything for sure, but she comes off like a virgin to me. She comes off like a young woman who does not have a lot of experience with boys and with kissing and with sex. I just don't get that sense from her. And so this feels like possibly her first kiss or or one of the first times where she really deeply kisses a boy. And so it feels like this initi- this initiation into lust and sexuality and desire and this world of men that maybe she's not come into contact with. And he's just, he's beautifully soft and tender with her. He's not aggressive at all. He, he's really opened himself to this experience they both have and they maybe wouldn't normally have been together you know he's very different from her he he has very different views than her and vice versa she is the kind of girl he probably would not have interacted with very much he probably would have gone for somebody hotter you know someone who was seen as sexier but he gives her a chance and she gives him a chance He's very different from her. And I feel like Eddie especially takes a chance. And, you know, while he's doing this, like I said, his friends are getting tattoos and (laughs) blowjobs. You know, very empty experiences. Eddie chose genuine connection. He chose a real person, you know, a real young girl. He didn't go out and, and pay someone. He didn't go to a porn film He didn't go looking for this fantasy. He actually went to have a real connection with a real person. And look at, look at what happens. Look what can happen when you open yourself up to this, up to something like this. And I just love when they go up to her room. She takes him up to her room like her mom has fallen asleep in front of the TV and she sneaks Eddie into her room And I just, I love the idea of him coming into her inner sanctum, like him being in her bedroom, you know, a a young girl's bedroom, a woman's bedroom is a sacred place. I mean, to me, my bedroom is very sacred and I feel like it's, it's such a private sacred space and to let him in there, I feel like that's a big deal for Rose. And she talks about Joan Baez and the folk music that she loves She talks about the pictures on her wall. She's really showing a part of herself to him. And I tell you, it took all I had to not turn this episode into just a breakdown of the love scene in this film. I love this sex scene so much. It might be my fate, one of my favorite love scenes ever. Not that I've seen a lot. I don't tend to actually watch romantic films. Um... Growing up, I did like romantic comedies and stuff, but um, since I've been more into art house cinema and stuff, I haven't really watched a lot of romance films. I wouldn't say romantic films attract me. 
it's it's not really my genre you know I'm much more into like the sad melancholic depressing sort of stuff or maybe films that are more like slice of life more naturalistic I just don't go specifically for romantic films it's just not an interest we all have our different interests but I love this love scene um it's sweet At times it's awkward, but it is so sincere and realistic, I would say. And it's also very respectful. To me, this sex scene is a really great example of consent, of affirmative consent, right? And of safe sex as well. I I love how respectful he is. Like at one point he's unbuttoning her sweater because they end up in her bed and they're kissing and And he unbuttons her sweater and he asks her, he says, is this okay? He knows that she's probably a virgin, that she's not as experienced and he doesn't want to push her. And she goes, uh, she puts her nightgown on and while she's doing that, he's undressing and he gets a condom out of his wallet. And I was like, yes, a realistic sex scene. Because God, in every movie or even TV show, you never see that. You never see it. Just never see the condom. And I just think it's it, it's reality. It's like what would really happen if these two people were were going to make love. And I just, I love that that was shown. I, I, I love it because it's rare. <laughs> and it's done in such a natural way. And so she comes out in the nightgown and he's like, oh, you look really good. And there's this, there's been this shift where at the beginning of the film, he saw her as ugly, as a joke, as something to take to the dog fight, right? And really, he saw her as an object. You know, he had really objectified her in a lot of ways, in dehumanizing and hurtful ways. And by this time, he sees her as a flesh and blood, real, multidimensional young woman. And he wants her and he desires her. And he feels things for her and he's attracted to her. And I just, I think that's beautiful. It's not about pity, you know, and and it's not about desperation. It's not like, well, this is my last night before I go off to Vietnam. I'll just have sex with whoever is around. It's not about that. And it's also not about, oh, this little girl, I better take this young woman. I better take pity on her and have sex with her. No, this is about two people that want each other, that desire each other. And are being together. And it's just he's so tender with her. He strokes her hair. He kisses her gently. He's looking into her eyes. Like I have to say this just. This ticked off all my boxes. For an erotic romantic love scene. And I've talked a lot on the podcast. In different episodes. um, About different love scenes. And about the representation of sex in films. And how. In particular, heterosexual sex scenes are really not erotic for me because too often there is a power differential. Um, There's a power difference where the man is dominant, he's in control, and he is seeking his own pleasure. He doesn't care about the pleasure of the woman. Whereas I've talked about, I think I talk, might have talked about it in my episode on Morris, the James Ivory film. I'm not quite sure. And Desert Hearts would be another example of a film that I really love the, the love scenes in that film as well. Where queer love scenes I find much more satisfying 
because there is mutual pleasure. There's mutual gratification. Both both people are interested in loving each other and bringing pleasure to each other. Whereas with the heterosexual love scenes, I'm I don't like that as much because I don't like I don't like the way male pleasure gets centered at the expense of female pleasure. And um, he is just so, and so I would actually say that for dogfight, this is a rare heterosexual love scene for me as a woman that I found erotic and that I found really pleasing. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it because he is attentive to her needs and desires and he's so tender and kind to her and respectful he cares about her pleasure um, when so often in love scenes, male pleasure is just completely centered and is the main focus. And and I do feel like Rose's pleasure and her experience and her enjoyment is being centered and is being thought of and that it's important. And I love how in the scene, Rose is just smiling so much. She has the biggest smile on her face you can tell that she just loves every moment. She just loves it. Oh, I just, I wish I could talk about this scene forever. It is just, it was a revelation to me to see it. I was like, yes, we've got tenderness. We've got safe sex practices, you know, with the condom. We've got consent. You know, we've got two people just genuinely kissing and loving on each other it's it's so sweet and and just real and I just I love it oh it's so romantic it might be one of the most romantic love scenes I've ever seen when he kissed her forehead I just about died I was like oh my god he's kissing her forehead (laughs) I loved it Loved every minute of it. Watching it a second time for the podcast. Still loved it. It lived up to everything that I remembered. And um, still love it. One of the best. One of the best ever. So after they make love, she walks him outside. She gives him her address so that he can write to her. And this is the moment in the film where I really felt like this night had changed both of them. That years later they both would think about that night together and they would feel that aching that you get for all the perfect times that are lost. And it just feels like this perfect moment in time suspended just right there, the two of them together before the assassination of John F. Kennedy, before he leaves, before war, before the country changes, before a lot of turmoil and chaos and carnage and devastation are going to come. And it's just these two kids together, loving each other, comforting each other, finding beauty and solace in one another's bodies. <laughs> I sound so cheesy saying that, but it's how I feel. And it's like, I just feel like years and years and years later, Rose will think back to that night and he'll think back to that night. And I don't know if they would really end up together or be a couple. They'd probably just go their separate ways. I'll talk about the ending in a moment and just, oh, it's a beautiful love story. It it feels organic in the way that it develops in the film, but you just feel like this is a night that left an imprint on both of them that neither one of them will ever forget. 
And as I was watching the film, it's set in the 1960s, it made me think about this really lovely TV show that I watched when I was like in my early teens and that I really enjoyed it. It came out in the early 2000s and it was called American Dreams. And I don't know why nobody talks about it. From what I can remember, it had Brittany Snow in it. Some of you might know her. But the show itself was set in the 1960s. And it was about this one family, Brittany Snow's family. And Gail O'Grady played her mom. And I love Gail O'Grady. Why is there not more love for Gail O'Grady? I don't know. She was in a lot of made-for-TV movies that would show in the 1990s. Especially on Lifetime and Long-time listeners know that I love Lifetime movies from the 1990s. Love made-for-TV movies from the 90s. And I'm a big fan of Gail O'Grady, and she's wonderful in this series. But it's set in the 1960s, and it's about really about Brittany Snow, about her best friend that she has. And I think they dance on the American bandstand. It's just about life in the 1960s in America. And I remember it just being a really great show. Like it had great music in it, had a really good theme song. And my mom and I would watch it and we just really enjoyed it. It only lasted a few years. I don't think it's streaming anywhere. I have no idea. I don't think it is actually. But watching Dogfight reminded me of that show because it was also sort of about, you know, these teenagers in the 60s and going through the turmoil, going through the experiences, that coming of age story um, within that specific time period. So I just wanted to mention it because it made me think of that. And I love the scene after, um, after she gives him her address and he leaves and he's just running down this darkened street and you can see the Golden Gate Bridge in the background. And it's just this gorgeous scene. Like, we're not sure why he's running, you know, like, but makes you wonder where is he running to? I guess he's running to his future. He's running into the unknown, into this other world that's going to engulf him. And that's going to be Vietnam and the war and everything that's going to happen. And he's running towards his buddies. He's running back to that male world. You know, he's left the feminine female world of Rose And he's going back to the men. He's going back to the military. At the same time, he has a very powerful bond with these men. And they are friends and he can trust them and they protect each other and stick up for each other. And so that is one thing that he has with them is that very deep bond. Um, But he but he's different. You know, once he's around the men and he's back on the bus, you know, he brags about last night he had sex with an officer's wife and that's what he had been doing. And and he actually tears up Rose's address and throws it out the window. So we realize that he's not going to write to her. Maybe he can't write to her. You know, when he's about to go into war as like a 19 year old man and Maybe he can't let himself think about that. He can't let himself remember his life before. Maybe he has to put himself in this space of war and violence and shooting in order to survive it. But I really think this film is is about the damage and toll of war. It's not about glorifying war. It's not about glorifying any of that. It's about showing what it does to people and to their bodies and to their lives. And a lot happens in the last few minutes or the last few scenes of the film. John F. Kennedy gets assassinated on November 22nd, 
We see Rose and her mom watching television about it. We see Eddie in Vietnam and him getting injured. His leg gets injured. And I think one of his friends, one of his buddies gets hit. And so we see a few things. And then then we're back with Eddie in San Francisco in 1967. Now, if you go on Wikipedia, Wikipedia will say that it's 1966. But the commentary by Nancy Savaka, which was in 2003, and it's for the DVD for Dogfight. She says it's 1967 and it's the Summer of Love. The Summer of Love was in 1967. So I just want to make clear why I'm saying that year. And if you go to Wikipedia, they say something different. So Eddie is back in San Francisco. He's been back and, and the whole film really has been his memory and him thinking back to the night that he had with Rose. And San Francisco has completely transformed in the few years that Eddie has been gone. There's hippies. There's this complete counterculture that has blossomed. The anti-war, you know, all of that. But also the belief in peace and love and all of that. And Eddie's in his military fatigues. He's in like this green hat and green jacket. And there is a guy on the street that asks him how many babies he killed. I'm not sure how widespread the animosity towards returning soldiers was. I've seen different sources say that it wasn't that widespread, but there is anecdotal stuff. There are stories about it that when veterans came home, they had things said to them. They felt a tension and an animosity. So I think Nancy Savaka is trying to show some of that, you know, that may have happened. And Eddie is not a teenager anymore. You know, he left when he was 19. He's now in his early 20s. He looks battle-hardened. He looks older. He's limping. He's wounded, possibly traumatized. We don't know mentally what he may be going through. He walks with a limp because of his wound in the war. He goes to this bar where there's these older men who thank him for his service and stuff like that. But he doesn't belong. That's the sense I get about Eddie, even near the end, is that at the beginning, he didn't really belong. He didn't totally fit into that masculine military world. But when he goes into the bar, he doesn't fit with the old men because they're in their 60s or 70s. He's in his 20s. He doesn't fit there. He didn't fit outside on the sidewalk with the hippies and the other people who haven't been to the war. He's someone who remains an outsider. And I would say there's something sort of tortured or tormented about Eddie in that way, that here is this young man who fits nowhere. You know, he doesn't fit with these older men. And really the Vietnam War was a war of older men sending young men to go die. And it was about these men um, just decimating a country, killing so many uh, Vietnam people in Vietnam too. That doesn't get talked about enough, obviously. All of it was horrific, in my opinion. All of it was terrible. But here in the U.S., we focus on the military death toll. We don't talk about the death toll in Vietnam and of civilians. It's the same thing with the Iraq War, where we talk about the military military deaths, but we don't talk about the Iraqi civilians who have died. This was really one of the first wars where I think the American public was very disconnected from it and didn't understand why it was happening. And it was ongoing. You know, it was 
almost a decade-long war. And you think about now, we've been in Afghanistan almost 20 years. We've been in Iraq, you know, in Afghanistan for a very long time. This war without end, right? And you get that sense with Vietnam as well. So here is Eddie, and he just fits nowhere. He doesn't fit with the people his age. Doesn't fit with the old men. Doesn't really fit in the military totally either. So he's just this sort of liminal character. Like he, he's such an outsider. Very much a misfit in a lot of ways. And we don't know what kind of atrocities he's had to commit. Or the things he's had to do. We don't know. But he obviously carries that inside himself. And so the final scene. I read online that there are some people that like it. Some people who don't. I love it. I can't imagine the film without the final scene. I just can't imagine it. And he goes to Rose's coffee shop. He walks in and there's Rose and she looks so different. Her hair's slicked back in a ponytail. She's sort of in in hippie clothes. She sort of looks like this bohemian. She looks very bohemian in what she's wearing. She looks more mature. She does look older. She just looks very different. Um, more like she's come into herself. There, There's a poster on the outside of the cafe about the Peace Corps. So she may have gone overseas. She may be involved in the Peace Corps. And he just stands there. And she walks over to him. And no words need to be said. Nothing needs to be said. They just embrace. The two of them just embrace. And they stand there and... He just clings to her. And I think I think they're both reminders to each other of the world before, the life before, you know, before JFK's assassination, before the escalation in Vietnam, before war and wounds and everything. They're this this reminder of who they were. You feel the loss of innocence, like the profound loss of innocence. That here are these two people. And it's been only three years, and yet they are so different. They have completely changed from who they were, and yet they still recognize each other, and they're able to hold each other and comfort each other in a way. And you think about that moment, what Rose could have done. There's a million things Rose could have done, and instead, she just hugs him. She gave him her address. He obviously didn't write. He tore it up. I mean, she could have been mad about that. She could have been upset that he never wrote her. But she's not. She's open to him. Her heart is open. Her arms are open. And he wraps his arms around her. It's not sentimental. It's not cheesy, right? It's beautiful. It just knocks me out, that final scene of these two people who were really changed by each other, who did not forget each other, and perhaps... In the darkest moments that he was going through, maybe he thought of her. Maybe he thought of that night together. Maybe that helped him get through. Why else would he show up? I mean, he shows up at the cafe, at the coffee shop for a reason. There must have been something about that night that stayed with him, that moved him, that haunted him. And he needed to come back and he needed to see her again. Because she had affected him in some way. And they had connected with each other. Even though they were very different. Had different worldviews, Different experiences. And even now, three years later. They're still able to love and embrace each other. 
and I just get this sense that both of them feel the loss, the loss of their innocence, the loss of their youth, maybe the loss of their ideals, although I like to think Rose held on to hers. And of course, three years later, Rose knows more about Vietnam. She would have more of an idea of what Eddie had seen and gone through. At first, when he tells her in 1963, I keep saying three years, I mean four years, sorry, um, it's 1967. When he first told her he was going to Vietnam, she, she didn't know anything about it. You know, in 1963, it just was not ubiquitous. A lot of people didn't know much about it. And of course, by 1967, the tone has changed, things have changed. And she would have had more of an idea of what it meant to go to Vietnam and what that experience would have been like for him. And so she just embraces him. No words needed. It's beautiful. The whole film is beautiful. The whole film knocks me out. But that ending especially, I can't even imagine the film without that ending. It's so powerful and memorable and unforgettable and really emotionally satisfying it does give you a sense of closure for these characters. And you don't know if they go on to date or they form a relationship or a friendship or if he leaves the coffee shop and never to be seen again. You don't know. You don't know what comes next for them. But just that image of them in each other's arms, it's beautiful, it's moving, it's unforgettable. This film is just spectacular. It is such a superb, fantastic film from the script to the direction, to the actors, to the set, to, to everything, the period detail. Nancy Savak in the commentary talked about how much she enjoyed researching the film. They did a lot of research to try to get the period detail right, you know, from, you know, what would be in the rooms to the music that would be playing to the film that would be playing on the TV that Rose's mom went to sleep to, a Hitchcock film. So everything was mapped out and, and beautifully researched and arranged. A very special film indeed. I hope I've done it justice. I hope that you have enjoyed my discussion of the film. I will stop here. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now. <laughs>